0: to turn with me to Acts chapter 8. I find many of the concepts in Scripture to be sobering, but if I had to pick one reality as the most sobering of all, it would probably be this, that there are some individuals who think they are saved who will be eternally lost. There are some individuals who think that they're on the narrow way that leads to heaven, when in fact they're on the broad way that leads to destruction. And they won't realize it until it's too late. In Matthew 7, Jesus said, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Those are the most shocking and terrifying words you could ever hear from him. I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Some people are going to discover too late that there's an entrance to hell at the very threshold of the gate of heaven. And that sobering truth is illustrated in our passage this morning. Chapter six and seven describe for us the short yet effective ministry of Stephen. After his death, the focus now shifts in chapter eight to the ministry of Philip. Philip preached the gospel to many people Two, in particular, are singled out in Acts chapter 8. One was a Samaritan magician. The other was an Ethiopian eunuch. Both heard the same preacher. Both heard the same message. We're told that both believed. Both were baptized. But one was saved, and the other was not. You say, well, what's the difference? How could these two individuals seemingly go through the same steps and end up an eternity apart? Well, we're going to find out this morning as we look at verses 5 to 24 where we have the account of an individual by the name of Simon. And I think it will become clear to us as we go through these verses that though he went through the motions, Simon was not a Christian. And because that's such a sobering thing, I want us to focus this morning on where he went wrong. Because perhaps there are some people here today who are in his same shoes. Simon had three glaring faults. Number one, he had a wrong view of self. Number two, he had a wrong view of salvation. And number three, he had a wrong view of sin. First of all, he had a wrong view of self. And we see that in verses 5 to 11. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Now this is not Philip the apostle. We know that because verse 1 tells us that the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. This is the Philip mentioned in Acts chapter 6 and verse 5. One of the seven who was selected to minister to the widows in the early church. In Acts chapter 21 and verse 8, we're told that he was an evangelist. In fact, he's the only individual in the New Testament who was actually given that title. Having been chased out of Jerusalem because of the persecution, Stephen went down to the city of Samaria. Technically, I guess you could say he was the first foreign missionary. Now, the city of Samaria, as we're told in 1 Kings 16, 24 was founded by King Omri and was the ancient capital of the northern kingdom. It was only about 40 miles away from Jerusalem and yet though it was close in proximity, it was far away in terms of association. When the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians in 722 BC, the king of Assyria took many of the Jews out of Samaria to foreign countries. He also took many out of foreign countries, Gentiles, and brought them into Samaria. The result was that they intermarried and created sort of a mixed race of Jews and Gentiles, half-breed Jews. And for that reason, the Jews in and around Jerusalem despised the Samaritans. In fact, in John chapter 4 and verse 9, it says the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. And for the Jews, the word Samaritan actually became a derogatory term. In John 8, 48, the Jews attempted to insult Jesus by saying, you are a demon-possessed Samaritan. And yet, obviously, God had done a work of grace in the heart of Philip because led by the Holy Spirit, the first place that he goes to preach the good news of Jesus Christ is Samaria. And we're told that the people were impacted three ways by his preaching. Number one, they were impacted mentally. Verse six says, and the multitudes with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip. Now you wouldn't expect a Jew to walk into Samaria and get this kind of reaction. And yet we're told here that they gave Philip their full attention. And not just some of the people, it says the multitudes with one accord, they all gave him attention mentally. Second, he impacted them physically. Verse 6 goes on to say, As they heard and saw the signs which he was performing, for in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. Philip not only preached, he demonstrated the power of God by casting out demons, by healing the paralyzed and the lame. Verse 6 says these were signs. Signs of what? Signs to demonstrate to the people on a physical level what God wanted to do in their lives spiritually. Jesus did the same kind of signs. You remember in Luke chapter 5 when the paralyzed man was dropped down through the ceiling in front of him by his friends. Jesus said to that man, your sins are forgiven. And then knowing the confusion that was going through the minds of the Pharisees, he said this, Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your stretcher, and go home. You see, the physical miracle was done to show that God had the power to do the greater miracle, forgive sins. And that's the same message that was going forth to the Samaritans. Philip was showing the power of God physically to demonstrate what God wanted to do in their lives spiritually. third way they were impacted was emotionally. Verse 8 says, And there was much rejoicing in that city. You can imagine, people that couldn't walk are now walking. People who were demon-possessed are now delivered. It was a joyful day in Samaria the ministry of Philip impacted the people mentally, physically, emotionally. But interestingly, this was not the first time that these people had reacted this way. Because in verses 9 to 11 we have a description of a false teacher who had gotten a similar response. Notice verse 9. Now there was a certain man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria claiming to be someone great And they all, from smallest to the greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, This man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. Before Philip arrived, Simon had had center stage in the city of Samaria. And he impacted the people the same three ways that Philip did. Mentally. It tells us that Simon had the complete attention of the people. You see that in verse 10? From the smallest to the greatest, everyone gave him their attention. Secondly, he impacted the people physically because it says that Simon was practicing magic. Now it's hard to say exactly what he was doing here because the term magic had a broad connotation. He could have been impressing people by deceit using sleight of hand tricks. Or he could have been relying on the powers of the occult like the magicians of Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 7 and 8 where we're told that they threw their staffs down and they became snakes. Where we're told that they actually turned water into blood and where they called up frogs upon the land by the power of Satan. Whatever it was, Simon was definitely doing some impressive things because in verse 10 the people were saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. But we also know that whatever he was doing was not as impressive as, as what Philip was doing because when we get to verse 13, we're told that Simon was constantly amazed by the signs and the great miracles done in his midst. Thirdly, they were impacted emotionally. And twice in these three verses, we read that the people were astonished by Simon's magic. Now, if you were a bystander looking on, you might see that Simon's ministry and Philip's ministry were very similar because both got the attention of the people, both caused physical things to happen Both resulted in an emotional reaction. And yet, we don't discover how different they were until we notice what their messages were. Philip's message is given to us in verse 5. He came proclaiming Christ. Philip didn't come to Samaria talking about himself. He came talking about Jesus. In contrast to that, verse 9 tells us Simon was claiming to be someone great. He used his power and his influence to promote himself. In fact, that title in verse 10, the great power of God is actually an expression of deity. Simon claimed to be great and the people did the worst thing they could possibly do for him. They believed him and they exalted him to the very top. And so the very first glaring fault in Simon was a wrong view of self. He was filled with pride and considered himself great. You say, well, why is that such a glaring fault? Well, because you can't strut into the kingdom. You have to stoop. You have to humble yourself like a little child. You must see yourself as lost and weak and helpless before you can be saved. And if you see yourself any other way, then you, like Simon, are not only deceiving other people, you are deceiving yourself. Second glaring problem with Simon was a wrong view of salvation. And that we see in verses 12 to 20. Verse 12 says, but when they believed Philip, Preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Philip came to Samaria and a revival broke out. Not only did people listen attentively, not only did they witness the miracles, not only did they rejoice, but they believed. And what did they believe? They believed the preaching of Philip. And Luke here gives us a little capsule summary of what his message was. It was the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. His message was that God has a kingdom. A kingdom over which he reigns. And as Jesus told Pilate when he stood before him, my kingdom is not of this world. Now the message that God has a kingdom and it's not of this world is not necessarily good news. In fact, that's really bad news because that tells us God has a kingdom and it's not of this world, which means we're not in it. But Philip was preaching the good news. And the good news is that God offers forgiveness and entrance into his kingdom. The good news is that the way into his kingdom is through Jesus, the Messiah, who died, was buried, and rose again. That's the message that Philip preached. And that's the message they believed. And the other thing we're told in verse 12 is that they were baptized. Now, if you look at verse 12, it really reinforces three important principles about baptism. Number one, baptism comes after a person believes. Verse 12 says, but when they believed, they were baptized. Baptism is not necessary for salvation. Salvation is by faith alone. Baptism is not something you do to get saved. It's something you do after you're saved. It's a visual picture of what has happened inwardly. You have died. You have been buried. You have risen to new life in Jesus Christ. Second principle that's reinforced in this verse is that baptism is not something you're to wait several years after your conversion to get around to. It happened here as it does in the New Testament in the same verse at the same time. And the third principle, baptism is not something you do to infants. It's only done to those who are old enough to understand and believe, and that's clear at the end of verse 12 because we're told here that those who were baptized were men and women. Now, look at verse 13. "'And even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip, and as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed.'" Simon, the one who had amazed the people of Samaria, was now amazed himself by the miracles of Philip. And we're told that he also believed, was baptized, and continued on with Philip. Now, if the story ended right here, we would conclude that Simon was a believer. But there's more to the story, as we'll see in a moment. Well, first of all, look at verse 14. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John. Word of Philip's ministry in Samaria reached the apostles in Jerusalem, and they sent Peter and John. Why? Verse 15. Who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now get that. The Samaritans believed and were baptized, but they had not received the Holy Spirit. And so Peter and John came from Jerusalem, laid hands on them, and the Holy Spirit came. Now some people teach that this is describing the normal pattern for Christians today that Christians receive the Holy Spirit subsequent to salvation. I have two fundamental problems with that position. Number one, it overlooks the clear teaching of Scripture. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9 says, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If you don't have the Spirit, then you don't belong to the Lord Jesus. There is no such thing in the scriptures as a Christian who doesn't have the Spirit of God. And the second fundamental problem I have with that position is that it overlooks the context of this passage. This is not just any group of people. These are the Samaritans. And these are the first Samaritans to believe. If the Spirit had come upon them when they first believed in, Samaritan, in Samaria, we would have had two churches the rift that was already there between Jew and Samaria would have simply entered into the church but God in his wisdom delayed the giving of the spirit to the people of Samaria so that the apostles would come down Peter and John representing them witness that the spirit in truth had come upon the Samaritans that they were within the same church that they were And also because Peter and John came, it helped the Samaritans to learn that they were to be subject to the apostles' authority. You get into trouble when you start extracting patterns from the book of Acts and applying them to Christians today. Because the book of Acts is a transitional book. And those who try to do so get confused. In fact, it's interesting to listen to people who take the view that you receive the Holy Spirit after you're saved when they start explaining how you get the Holy Spirit because if, if, if you look at verse 14 it says there that Peter and John came down and laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit some people teach on the basis of that that you have to have an apostle lay hands on you to receive the Holy Spirit which leads to the position that there must be an apostolic ministry today But when we get to chapter 9, we find that Ananias, who was not an apostle, laid hands on Saul, and he received the Holy Spirit. So that's not consistent. Some people would point to verse 17 and say, well, it doesn't matter necessarily who does it, but it does come through the laying on of hands. Well, that's not consistent either. Because when we get over to chapter 10, we find that the Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles on the Gentiles before Peter even had a chance to lay hands on them and other people would look at a verse like verse 15 and say well it must be through prayer and while it's true that they were praying in Acts chapter 2 and they were praying here in Acts chapter 8 when the Holy Spirit came when we come to chapter 10 we're going to find that the Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles while Peter was preaching you have to be careful with taking patterns from the book of Acts because it's a transitional book it's a transition from Jesus on earth to Jesus in heaven it's a transition from simply Jewish believers in Acts chapter 2 to Samaritan believers in Acts chapter 8 to Gentile believers in Acts chapter 10 there's a transition all the way through it transitions us from the apostles being there in person teaching to the apostles teaching through the written word There's transitions all the way through the book of Acts and so we have to be careful that we don't pull out a pattern and say that's the way it has to be. Well, that's enough preaching. Let's go back to Simon. Look at verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give this authority to me as well so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. The miracles done by Philip amazed Simon, but what Peter and John did overwhelmed him. They just laid their hands on people, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not told here, but there must have been some evidence associated with the coming of the Holy Spirit. I assume it was probably the same thing that they saw in Acts chapter 2, which was speaking in tongues. And so they laid their hands on people. The Spirit came. It was very evident that He came because of the response of the people. Simon sees that and he says, you know, if I could add this to my repertoire, I'd be back in business. So he comes up to Peter and John and he says, that's a nice trick. How much do you want for it? And Peter says, verse 20, may your silver perish with you. Now, that's a strong statement. John three sixteen says, those who believe on the Lord Jesus shall never perish. Peter says, may your money perish with you. And this is the reason why I say that Simon was not a believer. This is a strong phrase. In fact, J.B. Phillips renders it to hell with you and your money. That's the strength of what Peter is really saying to you. He's saying, you're going to hell, and may your money go there with you. You say, well, but it says in verse 13 that Simon believed. Well, that word is sometimes used in the New Testament to describe mental assent rather than saving faith. It's used that way in John chapter 2, where Jesus was at the feast in Jerusalem, and it says this, many believed in his name, beholding his signs, which he was doing. And Jesus did what? Jesus embraced them. No. It says they believed in his name, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. They believed mentally. Jesus knew that inside, that was not saving faith. James uses that same phrase in confronting people about mental consent or or assent in James 2.19 when he says, You believe that God is one, you do well the demons also believe and shudder. You believe mentally a set of facts? That's not saving faith. The demons even do that. And that's apparently the kind of belief that Simon expressed. He gave mental assent to the facts, but it wasn't saving faith. And Peter really points out his problem in the rest of verse 20. He says, May your silver perish with you because... You thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. May your money perish with you because you don't really understand salvation. You don't really understand the gift of God. You don't really understand the price that has already been paid for your forgiveness. And I think... Peter responded this strongly because what Simon was saying was really an insult to the grace of God. Because nothing God has is for sale. The second glaring fault in Simon was a wrong view of salvation. He thought he could buy it. You know, we've got a word for that today. It's called simony named after our friend here in Acts chapter 8. You can look it up in your dictionary. Simony e. means the buying or selling of spiritual things. And I think that's fitting that that word is in our vocabulary because we still have multitudes of people today who, like Simon, have a wrong view of salvation and they're trying to earn it. They're trying to buy it. That was his second glaring fault third glaring fault was a wrong view of sin in verses 21 to 24 and here we find that Peter doesn't leave Simon in this condition he points out to him that he's still in his sin and he calls him to repentance verse 21 says you for no you have no part or portion in this matter for you your heart is not right before God in other words he says you're not part of the church you have no part or portion you're not in you're outside because your heart is not right verse 22 therefore repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible the intention of your heart may be forgiven you here's the exhortation repent and pray for forgiveness verse 23 for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity You are literally poisoned by bitterness and enslaved to iniquity. Peter says to Simon, you are on the outside looking in. You are still in your sins, so repent. Did Simon heed the exhortation? Here's his response, verse 24. But Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Does that sound like repentance? It doesn't sound like it to me. If this was genuine repentance, then rather than saying, you pray for me, he would have fallen on his face before the Lord in repentance. You see, rather than being sorry about his sin, Simon is simply concerned about the consequences you pray and and take back all those things you said about me. That's the extent of what he says. Simon is a sobering character study because he shows us how close a person can be to salvation and not be saved. He heard the gospel, saw the miracles, gave a profession of faith in Christ, was baptized... He said the right words. He did the right things. He apparently even convinced Philip that he was a Christian. But he was on the broad road that leads to destruction. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 that there are many on that same road. This is a sobering passage. But if there's anyone here this morning who is walking in that same path, my prayer is that you'll learn from Simon's mistakes. He had a wrong view of self. He was exalted with pride. He had a wrong view of salvation. He thought he could buy it. And he had a wrong view of sin. He wouldn't admit it. He only wanted to avoid the consequences. And as a result, he wouldn't repent. It's too late for Simon. But there's still time for you to stop trying to earn your salvation, to humble yourself, and to repent. And to receive the gift of God, which is eternal life, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today. And Father, this is a sobering passage as we read about a man who heard and saw, was amazed, who went through the motions, was even baptized, seemed to be a part of the church, and yet Peter, by the power of your spirit, said he was perishing. And Lord, as we view this, we want to take time this morning to be honest in our own hearts before you. Maybe there are some of us here today who have fooled a lot of people. But we know that we can't fool you. Maybe there are some here today who still have an exalted view of themselves, who've never humbled themselves to come to you. Maybe there's some here today who are still trying to work their way to heaven, still trying to do things to please you, to gain access to you. And Father, maybe there are those here today who have never owned up to their sin, never really said, yeah, I did it, I've done it, I am a sinner. And Lord, in the honesty of our hearts today, if there are those here today who have never humbled themselves, never repented, never come for the salvation that is a gift from you, I pray that you might speak to their hearts today, and that today might be the day when they come off the broad road and onto the narrow road of faith in the only one who can save, Jesus Christ. I pray it in his worthy name.